Well, this is Christ the King Sunday, as I say, and our scripture is one of the texts in the common lectionary for Christ the King Sunday. So I want to invite you to pull out your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 43, and to read aloud with me as we study God's word together. If you're able, would you please stand? Let's turn to the page 859 of the Pew Bible and read Luke 23, verses 32 to 43. And when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading his holy word. Two others also, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by watching. But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. You might leave the text open. I think it's helpful as we discuss it together to have it in, in front of you. So this is the crucifixion of Jesus. And I guess the Romans figured, if we're, as long as we're going to haul this Jew and all that wood up to the killing hill, we might as well make it worth our while. And they grabbed a couple of others, common criminals, Jews, I guess. They put them on crosses on either side of Jesus. They scratched a sign out with a nail and pegged it over Jesus' head. This is the king of the Jews. They had a good laugh and pulled out the dice to wait. But Luke tells us the criminals on either side of Jesus, his subjects, if that's what you want to call them, got talking to the guy in the middle. Because I guess they had to figure out whether they wanted this sorry figure as their king or not. And I guess the task is pretty similar uh, for us as well today. So what can we learn from these two characters? Well, from the man on the first cross, I think we learn that we should want a king, that it's good to have a king in your life. He says, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Now, to me, this seems perfectly understandable. This is certainly a crisis for the first man. He's facing the last hours of his life. 
He does what I, what I would do, and that's to turn to the one on the middle cross and ask for salvation, to be rescued. But his words strike the man on the third cross differently than they strike me. And he has an advantage over us because he's not just hearing the words, he's also hearing the tone of those words. And so he responds, do you not fear God, he asks. And he also asks him, he says to him, we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. Now why does the man on the third cross rebuke the man on the first cross? Why does he say this? If not that he believes that the first guy has no real sense of accountability. Do you not know, he suggests, that you and I are accountable for our actions, that we have to answer for them? And this is what comes with having a king, accountability. There's a class now at Yale University called Life Worth Living. It's very popular. You have to compete to get into it. I read that the creator of the course, quote, thought there should be at least one place in the university where religious and moral traditions are explored with intellectual rigor and without avoiding the normative questions they raise. Does this vision of a flourishing life make sense? Or is it a vision I should want to follow? They look at different worldviews. I like those questions, especially the second. Do I have a vision of life that I should want to follow? Because the visions are different. The course director notes, one person will say that the life worth living is one in which you are responsible only to yourself. Another will say that the life worth living is the one in which you are responsible to God. Maybe the first criminal would have put himself in the first category. The life worth living is one in which you're responsible only to yourself. Do your own thing. Make yourself happy. A self-made man who worships his own maker. We have no king but Caesar. And not even Caesar when he's of no more use to me. Fact is, he turns to Jesus not as one turns to a king, but as one turns to a servant. Do you notice what he says? Not what would you have me do now, my king? But get me out of this fix and do it now. A tone that unfortunately resembles so much of my prayer life. If he speaks to Jesus, it's not to serve or to worship him, it's to use him. It's to assimilate him into his own ends as a means, as an instrument of his own lonely sovereignty. Does this guy want a king, or does he just want Jesus' help to become one himself? He's accountable to no one. And apparently that's how he got onto the cross in the first place. He put himself at the center of every possibility. Things have not gone so well to date, and now all that's left is the anger. He teaches us that we should want a king that the life worth living is one in which you are responsible to God, that there's something desirable about accountability, about being accountable to God. A king calls us to a life of justice. The early creed of those who followed Jesus was Jesus is Lord, which they stole from the Romans, who at that time said Caesar is Lord. It was a political slogan. To say Jesus is Lord was to imply that even Caesar is accountable and that there was a greater king than Augustus, 
a greater justice than Roman law, a justice of faith, hope, and love. Jesus is a king, and a new kingdom is coming. People who believe this began to work for justice, to care for the poor, to free the enslaved, to work for peace. You see, without a king in heaven, justice is just an idea. It's just a matter of personal preference or tribal power. We might say, for example, we believe in equal rights for women or freedom of the press. But if there are Saudis who hold different beliefs, who are we to force our beliefs on them? Wouldn't that be arrogant? Wouldn't that be culturally imperialistic? To say something is right or wrong in a way that applies to all people and all cultures requires that there be some greater standard to which all cultures are ultimately accountable. Otherwise, it's just a preference. Like, you like light meat, I like dark meat. And political discourse cannot be a shared process of discovery, but only a tribal quest for power. Might makes right. Now, to say Christ is king is to say we are all accountable to him. Jesus rules over all things. You, me, all of creation, all of history. He's Lord of all or not at all, we say. It's simple to say, but it's not so easy to live. Is he king over my thoughts, over my speech, my relationships, my money, my work, my time, over the arts, the sciences, the university, the marketplace, the government, the environment? Is Jesus king over medicine, entertainment, race relations? In each of these areas, the question is not, what do I think of these areas? The question is, what does he think of these areas? At the heart of Christian conversion, there is the realization that the world does not revolve around you. At first, disappointing, but ultimately, that's not a bad thing. (laughs) It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. To live a life that revolves around Jesus is precisely what makes for a life worth living. Jesus is God acting through all time and space to bring his redemptive purposes to all things. When your life is tied up with the destiny of this king, your life is tied up with the destiny of everything. Whether we believe it or not, we ought to want it. We ought to yearn for it. We ought to want Jesus to be king with every fiber of our being. That's our hope. That's what we learned from the man on the first cross that it's good to have a king in your life? What do we learn from the man on the third cross? I think it's that Jesus rules from a cross, that you and I have a king who loves us with his life. The third criminal says in verse 41, we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He points us to the man on the middle cross. There's something different about him. 
He hangs condemned, but has done nothing wrong. He is righteous, yet he dies in the company of common criminals. Why? Well, there's a bigger story here. And it's ringing in Luke's ears as it should be in our own. 800 years earlier, a prophecy had come to a man named Isaiah. Here's what God had said through Isaiah. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. To miss this, it's like coming into a theater at intermission. You know what I mean? The second act just won't make any sense to you because the tension of the drama has all been established in act one. If you come in at intermission, you end up scratching your head saying, well, the costumes are good, but I wonder what all the fuss is about. You see, Luke understands the fuss. He gets it as soon as he hears what the third criminal says to the first. He's read the Old Testament. He knows the problem and he remembers what God promised in the eighth century. We all have gone astray. To stray from God is to turn from life itself towards death. God is by nature pledged to rule this creation with absolute and perfect justice. The problem is all of us come before God not as loyal subjects, but as those before a king who have committed treason. All of us. We, like these two criminals, have been condemned justly, he says, by the law and by the perfect goodness of a holy God. The tragic lie of human history was spoken by the serpent to those who first turned astray in Genesis 3. You will not die. That's a lie. And every time we sin, we believe the lie. We believe the lie that sin is not a matter of life and death. And this is the depth of the human predicament. As Isaiah says, it's like an infirmity, a disease. It's as if you're sitting in the doctor's office and getting the worst possible news. You have the infection. It's terminal. Even with all your resolutions, even with all your best intentions, with your good ideas and good practices, with your law keeping, there's just nothing at this point you or I can do. I'm so sorry. We're born into a world under judgment and we are culpable. This is what the guy on the third cross means when he says we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But, for the sorry figure on the middle cross. Oh, brothers and sisters, we should want a king like this. If you find him, count yourself beyond lucky. He was wounded for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that makes you whole. And by his bruises, you are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I think of Robert Bowers, Robert Bowers, I hope you don't recognize the name. 
He killed 11 people in a synagogue. But his life was saved by a Jew, Dr. Jeff Cohen. Bowers came out of the ambulance shouting, kill all the Jews. But his nurse was Jewish, his doctor was Jewish, and the president of the hospital was Jewish. The healer became the victim. And the victim, the healer. Robert Bowers was healed by a man who withheld the punishment that he deserved. And so are we, and all the more. In Jesus Christ, God heals the world by becoming the victim. He's done nothing wrong, and yet we find him under the same sentence of condemnation. On the middle cross, God judges your treason and mine guilty. But on the middle cross, God suffers condemnation in our place so that we may be declared innocent, not guilty. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As St. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. What Paul means, I think, is that God has taken the record of everything we've ever done, everything we've ever done wrong, everything we ever will do wrong, and nailed it to the cross. And Jesus is the stamp of heaven. Don't sentence paid. Don't debt canceled. Don't not guilty. He, the innocent, has taken the place of us, the guilty. They crucified him with the criminals. The Swiss pastor called Bart reflected on the phrase in verse 33 with a group of inmates in a prison in Basel. Dr. Bart says, which is more amazing, to find Jesus in such bad company or to find the criminals in such good company? And yet they could not escape from his dangerous company, for he's a king. God had nailed himself into our humanity, into our sin, into our justly deserved condemnation. And Pastor Bart writes, his damnation means our liberation, his defeat, our victory, his mortal pain, the beginning of our joy, his death, the birth of our life. These three men are for Bart, the first certain, indissoluble, and indestructible Christian community right there on the skull. All this is what we learn from the criminal on the third cross, that Jesus is king of heaven and earth that God has swept away our fight against him, that the world in revolt is still loved, that you are loved. We ought to want a king like this, want this king, want to do what he asks of you, not because he's king, but because he loves you like no other, because he's a crucified king, because he rules from a cross. The final question then is, Will we let him be our king, you and I? Because God invites us to decide. God invites us to come as one of these criminals, to come to Jesus as to our king. It's he who said, 
you are welcome here. Here at the foot of the cross. Here with your king. Here at UPC, by the way. No matter who you are or what you've done, you may be wounded, divorced, addicted, convicted, full of doubt, full of failure, on the gender spectrum or pushed off. You are welcome here before this king. There is none of us here so ashamed or so proud that we cannot, as Bart says, get in line behind these criminals. We do it not just because we want to be in paradise when we die, but because we want to carry paradise in our souls as we live. The Scottish Olympian Eric Little once said, the kingdom is where the king reigns. If he's reigning in my heart, then the kingdom of heaven has come to me. And the man on the third cross has found uncommon courage, not just to face his death, but to live the brief remainder of his life with courage for his king. So what about you? Are you ready to say with him, Jesus, remember me? Jesus, remember me. I want you to be my king too. That's what it means to become a Christian. To come to the cross like a criminal, but to come to God with royalty, like a princess or a prince with a king who gave his life for your sin in love. Don't you ever wonder what happened next to the guy on the third cross? I would love to have been there when he shows up in that line at the gates of heaven. Someone calls out his name and asks him as he comes forward, well, did you keep the law? Uh, no, I broke it. Well, did you turn your life around? Uh, no, well, it was too late. Hey, pal, this is paradise. What in the world do you think you're doing here? And he says, you know, I am the foggiest idea. I don't belong here at all. All I know is, I heard the fella on the middle cross. He said, he'd be here with me. And I believed him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, King of heaven and earth, we bow before you, not just because we are sorry for what we've done wrong and will continue to do wrong, but in absolute adoration, wonder, and joy because of who you are and what you've done. Oh, what a gracious king. Oh God, for those of us who have heard this news before, grant us grace that by your Holy Spirit you might rule from the throne of our hearts as well. Let the kingdom reign in us. And for those of us for whom this news strikes us as somehow new this morning, grant that we might become believers, that we might place our trust in nothing but the person and work of our Savior Jesus Christ, who sits now exalted on the throne of heaven. Grant us the assurance that we today are Christians, not because of our good works, but because of our faith in you. And give us the courage to share that decision with someone or ones around us that we might hear their joy together with ours. In Christ's name we pray, amen.